podcast. Today we return to the story of William Swallow and the convict mutineers who took the brig Cyprus and absconded before they could be landed at Sarah Island, the hellhole of secondary punishment in Macquarie Harbour. This is the second episode of a two-part story, so if you haven't already listened to part one, episode 48, you may like to go back and listen to that first to get a background to William's early days in the convict system and his previous attempts at escape. He certainly was a lucky, lucky man to have made it to this point alive. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I am relying heavily on the work that Warwick Hurst did in uncovering Swallow's story and published in the book titled The Man Who Stole the Cyprus, A True Story of Escape. And I have put the full publishing details for that great book in the reference list on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. We left off last time with William Walker, presently known as William Swallow, and his 17 accomplices just as they had taken control of the Cyprus, a government transport and supply ship, which was taking them all to Sarah Island, the outpost of secondary punishment for re-offending convicts. While they were anchored in Research Bay waiting for a suitable weather window to round the southwest cape of Van Diemen's Land, the convicts had enacted their plan to mutiny and seize the Cyprus, with the intent of sailing to freedom. They had offloaded the guards, passengers and crew, along with any convicts who did not care to join them, onto the mainland around Research Bay, leaving them with about one week's food supplies, and a few other items to help them survive, giving them a fighting chance at least, before they sailed away. So we'll take up the story again just as they're heading off. But first, my thanks to Josh J for his donation last month to help keep this independent show afloat. <laughs> Cheers, Josh. So now let's just recap briefly. The men on the Cyprus had voted Swallow as captain and navigator, Ferguson became the lieutenant, and Jones the first mate. An additional 15 convicts had been part of the original escape plan or had agreed to crew once the mutiny was underway. They were Brown, Cam, Pennell, Maguire, Herring, Templeman, Davis, Beveridge, Thacker, Stevenson, Denner, Watts, Bryant, Lynch and Towers. So they had 18 on board to sail their escape vessel. The weapons had been distributed amongst the mutineer crew, along with shares of the money and clothing they'd found on board, and they had agreed to make for America. All seemed jubilant at their early success and their prospects. But for a long voyage like that, they would need to take on more fuel and water, so it was decided that they'd make for New Zealand first, where they could source the wood and water they required before heading off to America. If you recall, they otherwise had plenty of supplies to see them through, as the Cyprus had in its hold ample food and other resources that were intended for the penal settlement at Macquarie Harbour. It couldn't have been a more ideal vessel for mutineers embarking on a ten-week sea voyage. But we'll leave them hightailing it off to New Zealand just now, and instead we're going to turn our attention to those they left behind. About 44 or so castaways had been left on shore with only meagre rations and equipment, some sail canvas and other gear, and some personal belongings, but no boat that could have allowed them to sail north and raise the alarm. While they had immediately fashioned some primitive shelter from the tea tree and scrub around the bay, it was still very cold in southern Tasmania at that time of the year, and the food would not last long. If no ships arrived by chance in the next week or two, they could find themselves dying of exposure or starvation right there, so they had to consider other options to effect rescue. Initially, the captain of the guards, Karu, while he had been very courageous in his confrontation of the mutineers on the Cyprus, seemed to fall apart a bit once they were clearly marooned and their precarious situation unfolded. He and the ship's captain might have been expected to lead the group with ideas and actions, but instead Hurst suggests that their first attempt at raising the alarm was initiated by a convict named Popjoy. If you recall from the last episode, 
Cobjoy was the convict who had been off the Cyprus, rowing the officers at their fishing while the mutiny was taking place, and he was brought back on board after Karu had surrendered the vessel. There's some conjecture that Popjoy was himself intimately involved in the plan to seize the Cyprus, but if so, after the revolt was underway, he seems to have changed his mind, no longer wishing to join the convict pirate crew. He maintained, though, that he was forced by the other convicts to give any assistance he was accused of, but was at some point able to stealthily disguise himself amongst the other passengers being ferried to shore. In alternate testimony, he claimed Swallow offered him the role of second mate, but that he declined. He said then Swallow refused to let him go to shore with the others, but that he later slipped quietly over the edge of the boat, unnoticed, and swam the mile to shore. Well, that's quite a feat then, in an era when many sailors couldn't even swim at all. Popjoy was himself a curious character, his own history perhaps not so far from Swallow's, it seems. He had been a sailor from a young age, but was transported initially for 14 years for theft, and then, further offending once transported, spent time at Sarah Island. Returning afterwards to Hobart, he again fell foul of the law and was being sent back on the Cyprus to Sarah Island for another stint there, which would surely this time deter him from a life of crime. So, Popjoy's intent, motivations and honesty in relation to the mutiny were questioned over the years, but certainly he made himself invaluable to the castaways in Research Bay, and they would be glad he was amongst them. He constructed a little raft which enabled him to catch some fish and gather shellfish to help augment their rations. But after a couple of days, and still with no rescue plan forthcoming from the captains, Popjoy made a suggestion, and he volunteered to undertake the difficult mission himself. He proposed that he and two others try to walk through the thick bush to the Birches Bay Timber Settlement, about 80 kilometres or 50 miles along the coast. They would follow the shoreline where they could, so as to avoid getting lost inland. But river crossings were always a struggle, and walking inland to find a place to cross had the potential to delay their progress. So with few rations available, it would still be a very risky attempt. The idea seemed at least viable though, so he and two other men took some provisions and set off. It would be a difficult and arduous trek. It would be a difficult and arduous trek, much as discussed in the Sydney Cove First Contact episode, number 43. The terrain was exceptionally rugged, the bush thick and full of plants that prickle, slice and fail to yield as you push through. There's a good reason why you stay on the track when hiking in Tassie. And there were numerous rivers to cross, which in August in the southern winter would be flowing high with abundant runoff from the interior. It really was hard going, and as they faced their first confronting river crossing, one of his companions felt already beaten by the task, saying he could go no further and would, quote, rather go back and die of starvation than face the risk of drowning or being killed by Aborigines, unquote. So he abandoned the attempt, retracing his steps to the camp at Research Bay alone. Pobjoy and Meekins persevered. Hearst estimated they'd travelled about 40 kilometres in three days, though the necessity to detour inland before crossing the larger rivers added more exertion to the trek than they had anticipated. The Huon River, which sent them inland for around 15 kilometres, proved particularly difficult. Finally reaching a viable crossing point, as they had done for each crossing, they stripped off so as to keep their clothing and belongings as dry as possible, carrying them bundled overhead. They made their way through the icy waters and collapsed on the northern side to recover. But before they had recuperated, a group of Aboriginal men came out of the bush with weapons, making it clear the white men were not welcome here. Popjoy and Meekins immediately dashed back into the water and made for the opposite bank, leaving behind their clothes and provisions in their panic. Not knowing the protocols for requesting safe passage through the Nyanonic country they were crossing, and fearing the worst, they felt their way was now blocked, and so they headed back to the castaway camp, now naked and with no provisions at all. Finding berries and gathering mussels along the way, miraculously they did make it back five days later, stumbling out of the bush in a very sad state, desperately hungry and covered in bruises and nasty scratches. 
No doubt those left behind were shocked to see them, and they would also have been disappointed to hear that access to rescue from the timber station was prevented. They were back where they had started, but now with even less food. With the supplies dwindling, their limited success at gathering wild game, and the shelters barely sheltering them from the August chill in Tasmania's south, they had to consider other options. No ship had arrived in the bay yet, and while they knew some might pass along the coast, there was no guarantee that they would call in to Research Bay. If the sailing weather remained favourable, they would have to try again to raise the alarm themselves. After some recovery, it was Pobjoy again that came up with the next cunning plan. This time, he suggested he would construct a little boat and paddle it to Birch's Bay. A sailor from the Cyprus, named Morgan, would help. In fact, they would construct a little coracle, a type of vessel with Celtic origins that had been used in the British Isles for centuries. And Morgan knew that a little coracle could see them safe on the water, if they were lucky enough to have calm conditions. So, with only penknives as tools, they began building the frame from wood available around the bay. There was a legend of St. Bernard saying a small coracle across the Atlantic, wasn't there? Though Wiki says it was a traditional Irish currach, a similar vessel I think, though a little more boat-shaped in construction, and often using hide as the hull skin. Anyway, the coracles were well-known, buoyant little vessels in the past. I've seen a small coracle being constructed on some British TV show, and there's plenty of YouTube videos to look at if you want to see one being built. The one I saw looked like a fantastic little half-sphere. <laughs> like a giant walnut half, actually but it was extremely light and very buoyant, and it did the deed for monitoring the eel traps in the rivers there, apparently. I got the impression that the one Pobjoy and Morgan built seemed a little bigger from the image that I've seen. Maybe more of a currack after all. Anyway, Hurst describes them fashioning the keel, gunwales and sternpost, and using green wattle saplings that could be bent into position and lashed together with twine. A salvaged plank was fixed across the middle for a seat, and using some of the canvas from the ship's hammocks and stretching it tightly over the coracle frame, they created the outer skin of the vessel. Boiling soap and resin to waterproof the canvas, they applied the mix liberally and allowed it to harden. Hurst described the resulting craft as resembling a giant 12-foot-long turtle. The final requirement was to whittle some paddles from the hardwood nearby. They had done a great job, and they felt they had an excellent chance of paddling their way north. But others in the group must have been less convinced. Now five of the other convicts volunteered to have a stab at walking inland to Hobart. They must have figured they'd been on the way to the end of the earth anyway before the mutiny. Perhaps some might have contemplated an escape attempt from that hellhole had they reached there, and if they were lucky enough to survive this ordeal... Perhaps they would be rewarded by the authorities and have their sentences pardoned. Some may have thought of this rescue attempt as an escape of sorts anyway. Who knows each man's motivation, but Karu and the officers must have had some misgivings about them actually presenting themselves to the authorities, should they actually make it to Hobart. And he pondered the offer for a few days, before deciding it was worth a try too. In the end, every chance had to be taken in the hope that the remaining castaways might be rescued. On August 23rd, scant provisions were given to Pobjoy and Morgan, along with some officially signed papers, raising the alarm and requesting assistance. The documents read, quote, These will inform you that the brig Cyprus has been captured by the prisoners, who sent us together with family, soldiers, sailors, etc., in all 40 persons on shore. We have been here nine days and are without provisions. Your immediate assistance will be the cause of saving us from starvation. The men who bear this have behaved in an exemplary manner and of course will be treated accordingly. Unquote. The authors also wrote, quote, We fail for want of paper. You must therefore apprise His Excellency in the Lieutenant's name of our misfortune. Unquote. And finally, a postscript, quote, You will not destroy the boat as it was made with three pocket knives, 18 prisoners gone in the brig, five making Hobart through the bush, unquote. So off they went in their little coracle, the gutsy Pobjoy and Morgan, out of the calm bay and into open waters. 
And don't you just love that the captain and lieutenant were so impressed with the recently built coracle that they took the trouble to ensure it would not be destroyed? Wouldn't it be brilliant if it were actually kept in some museum in Tassie to be viewed today? My brief internet search didn't find any information on it, but I hope someone knows what happened to it. It's an investigation for another time, perhaps. One of the prisoners sketched the scene of the coracle being built, and that illustration was published in Hobart newspaper reports. So I'll put a copy of that image on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. As a final insurance, Karu did let the five convict volunteers try their luck trekking inland to Hobart. Led by John Hall, who originally thought he might join the mutineers, only to back out when the deed was underway, with William Gould, the creator of the Coracle sketch, who would later become celebrated for his artwork, Robert Briggs, James Taylor and Frederick Chapman. Again, with only meagre rations, they optimistically hoped they could make their way north in five days, but they didn't really know what they were in for, and they would have a severe ordeal ahead of them. Popjoy and Morgan managed to make progress north on their first day, putting into shore for the evening. The next day, they made it as far as Partridge Island, in waters sheltered from the east by Bruny Island, though the channel itself is very wide there and still subject to difficult winds and tides. At this point, a map might be handy, so I will try and find a suitable one and put it on the website. But Hurst records them experiencing choppy waters, and one of them having to constantly bail water out to get them to this point, about 30 kilometres north of Research Bay, and there, on Partridge Island, they came ashore to rest. It appears that it was not only Swallow that could draw amazing luck around him, though. Pobjoy was about to have a pretty good finish to his day. That same afternoon, a vessel making its way south along Doncastro Channel, and struggling with the same difficult sailing conditions, also hove to behind Bruny Island to wait for better weather, before heading down to round the Cape. Some eagle eye on deck noticed a fire flickering on the nearby Partridge Island and decided to row ashore there for a sticky beak. No doubt jaws would have dropped when Pobjoy and Morgan ran to meet them at water's edge. They'd seen the ship in the channel and built a fire to draw attention. And so one of the ship's small boats was immediately sent north to relay the Cyprus news to Hobart, and the other vessel continued on to Research Bay to rescue those waiting there. The little coracle had done its work. By the 27th of August, news of the mutiny on the Cyprus was with the authorities in Hobart. Popjoy and Morgan, being eyewitnesses of course, were closely questioned by the authorities. And within days, all sorts of salubrious and unreliable stories about the mutiny and the actions of the convicts were being published in the papers. Back in the south, as the rescue vessel arrived at Research Bay, the remaining persons there said to be at the point of near starvation, were taken aboard to be brought back to Hobart, arriving there August 31st. The prisoner mutiny and the seizing of the Cyprus was a big story in the media of the day. Interestingly, Hurst noted that an agent for the maritime insurance company, Lloyds of London, was at port when they arrived, and afterwards he had inspected the coracle that Popjoy and Morgan had built and sailed, and was of the opinion that, quote, No man would venture across the Thames in it, unless to avoid instant death, unquote. So I think we get the idea how gutsy their effort was, and that they really deserved to be recognised for the risk they took on behalf of the castaways. Unfortunately for Popjoy, and one assumes then Morgan as well, their heroism was not immediately recognised, as they might have hoped and they were simply put back in irons with the other remaining prisoners, whilst the authorities set up an inquiry into the mutiny. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) The group trudging through the bush probably had less chance than the coracle sailors, and unfortunately for them, had unknowingly set off not long before rescue from Research Bay was imminent. It really was very rugged, thick bush, in unknown country and very cold weather, with local Aboriginal people already in conflict with the British arrivals, they were unlikely to be at all accommodating should their paths cross. So these convicts' attempts to bring rescue might have been even more heroic, though I can imagine Karu thought there might be a good chance this lot would disappear into a fugitive's life if they were lucky enough to make it to Hobart, perhaps not even telling the authorities of their plight. Oh, the trust and bonds between the jailer and the jailed, eh? 
So while those remaining at Research Bay had since been rescued, the convicts' optimistic five-day trek had expanded to ten before the five men were discovered by searchers sent out from Birch's Bay settlement when the alarm was raised. And just in time too, as they hadn't eaten for the previous five days and could no longer go on. Their state must have been sorrowful, but they were transported directly to Hobart Jail to join Popjoy and the other convicts there. No immediate reward was evident for their attempt to find help. Soon after, a number of convicts involved signed a joint petition to Governor Arthur, asking for some indulgence in return for their service. And Popjoy also sent a personal plea to Arthur, pointing out he had twice volunteered and attempted to bring help for the castaways, at great risk to himself. Hurst quoted Popjoy saying, Your petitioner has submitted this account to you, praying that your honour will be good enough to take his late suffering into your humane consideration. I have only now 18 months to serve out of 14 years, and all the hardships and suffering that I have undergone was for the good of the people, generally. At my return to Hobart Town, I was sent to jail, loaded with chains in a weak state of body, of which my late sufferings occasioned. I have been under the necessity of keeping to my bed. As to what I have stated is truth and will be corroborated by the officers and doctor." Unquote. The five rescued from their near-fatal trek to Hobart wrote in their petition that they had volunteered, quote, for the sole purpose of being the instigation of saving the lives then left at that place. And though the pleasing promise of Lieutenant Caro making intercession for mitigation of punishment or liberty, if it could be possible granted if we succeed, and on those promises we fully build our hopes, unquote. Still, you can see why the authorities might have chained them up and locked them back in jail. These were already men of irredeemable character, unreformed and barely able to be controlled, as evidenced by them being sent to Macquarie Harbour in the first place, and they had then just proven how determined and resilient they could be in the wilds of Van Diemen's land. Hurst records their crimes since arrival, after their first transportation sentence, in his book, and they certainly appeared to be self-serving types, not your usual altruistic, community-minded, heroic citizens. Still, some reward was due for their good behaviour, surely. So how would Arthur receive their pleas? They had to await his consideration until October 7th. Meanwhile, returning to the mutineers, they'd headed off across the Tasman. At first, they seemed to run quite a tight ship, the men working the usual shifts that ship crews were required to and following orders to ensure the sailing successful, and soon they made landfall somewhere along the central west coast of New Zealand, Hurst suggesting probably in the vicinity of Hokitika, and it certainly is a fierce coast along there. And most of Swallow's crew would still be learning the ropes. Wherever it was, they were able to source the materials and supplies they needed. While they were at anchor, they sawed off the ship's recognisable figurehead, painted the ship's sides, and renamed it Friends of Boston, to indicate a different port of register. To be thorough, they even forged a set of ship's logs that would indicate that the now American trading boat Friends had recently arrived in New Zealand from their last stop at the Port of Manila in the Philippines. Swallow also reverted to an earlier alias, actually his original name by all accounts, and he became Captain Walker. Though for continuity, I'll continue to refer to him as Swallow. They hoped that the Friends was now no longer immediately recognisable as the old Cyprus, and began making their sail plans for the journey across the vast Pacific to American waters. They made their way north again, and experiencing bad weather conditions through the Cook Strait, they pulled into the sheltered Cloud Bay there, where there was a whaling station and elsewhere some vessels at anchor. While there, as was common practice, Swallow, as Captain Walker, communicated with a man from the whaling station, and also another from the ship in the bay. He told that schooner captain about sailing their American trading ship from Manila en route to Peru. But that captain was likely to have had his suspicions about Swallow and his crew. No doubt all the accents he heard were British. It would have been odd to have had a sawn-off stub where the figurehead might have been on a boat, and then someone on board made a rather unfortunate mistake. When the schooner captain asked if they could spare any fishing hooks, the friend's crew kindly sent some over but they were wrapped in a three-week-old newspaper from Hobart. Oh! <laughs> they were not likely to have got their Hobart newspapers in Manila. 
So he might have then been thinking the Friends of Boston was more likely to be a ship full of escaped convicts. Indeed, when he reached Sydney on September 22nd, the schooner captain did report his suspicions, which were soon after described in the Sydney and Hobart newspapers, suggesting, quote, the Friends of Boston must have been the Cypress Brig lately carried off by convicts. Her master's name is Walker, unquote. But by that date, Swallow's crew had already set off for their next destination, unknown to the authorities. Next stop en route to America was to be the Sailor's Paradise, Tahiti, 2,500 kilometres away. They were feeling pretty upbeat. As I think I suggested earlier, though, groups of escaped convicts, likely to be strangers to one another before their most recent incarceration, often failed to remain a cohesive and cooperative group once on the run. Any early cohesion and discipline agreed or displayed frequently fell apart, usually even before the elements defeated them, and so it was a long shot that Swallow and his motley mutineers might succeed as a disciplined crew over their 10,000-kilometre journey. But at least in the beginning, morale was good, and it looked to be a functional group. Weather, though, can always cause trouble and on a ship with only a few of the crew used to sailing conditions, it would have been very hard work. In one spell of rough seas, they lost William Brown overboard, and though he was one of the few who had previously been a sailor, he was overwhelmed by the sea and sank below the surface before they could come around and attempt any rescue. As they continued on, the gloss of the mutiny must have begun to wear off, and the drudgery and danger of the long voyage became more obvious. However, in quite an astounding feat of navigation, without any charts, Swallow did sail the boat within reach of Tahiti. But in what must have been a tremendously frustrating state of affairs, the southeast trade winds in the region forced them northwest of the usual port, with little chance they could manoeuvre their way back. So, to the great disappointment of many, they had to give up on Tahiti, and Swallow tried his best to make instead for the friendly islands now Tonga. So far they hadn't encountered any other ships that might cause them anxiety, despite them now being in busier waters, but Swallow was soon struggling to retain his captain's authority on board, and the smooth running of the brig may have been getting a bit bumpier. As Hurst put it, quote, After reluctantly turning their backs on Tahiti, the convicts found solace in rum. Alone in that trackless world of blue, and disappointed to be leaving behind the island of their dreams, they began to quarrel with each other. The hard work involved in sailing the brig and the boredom of the lengthy voyage compounded the situation, and Swallow had difficulty maintaining discipline as his shipmates committed acts of disorder and continued exceedingly distrustful, unquote. And so the rot had set in. The men, perhaps returning to their convict attitudes, balked at adhering to the rules in their little shipboard society, or heeding the authority of others around them. However, Swallow and his officers managed to hold it together a while yet. Within a week, they'd made it to an island north of the Tongan group, probably Niuiatopu Tapu, sometimes called Traitors or Keppel Island, where to their very great surprise, they were greeted by a black American man, who was able to translate for them. Hurst records that this man was identified as one of three survivors who had been left behind by the ship Port-au-Prince when it departed the island under duress in 1805. It seems that the three had all made good lives there and had no desire to leave when they were identified in 1832. Swallow hoped to rest there for some weeks, but during their stay his crew's cohesion unravelled further. By this time, the euphoria of the escape had well and truly worn off, and the Brotherhood of Thieves was fraying. Seven men chose to leave the ship at Tonga, and sailing the brig with a reduced crew would be even more demanding. But, you know, at least they weren't eating each other. Ferguson, Templeman, Bryant, Lynch, Towers, Cam and Maguire all stayed on the island, and the remaining ten men would now make for Japan or China instead of America. So, by mid-November, Swallow and his much-reduced mutineer crew set off northwest towards Japan, 2,000 kilometres distant. The voyage was no more comfortable, and they were now severely shorthanded for managing the sailing. The men continued their arguing, 
but they made progress, and by the end of January, they sighted the coast of Japan. I couldn't tell whether Swallow was aware that at this time Japan was a closed state, but by then the ship was in dire need of repairs, and most desperately, supplies of water and wood too. So they intended to make landfall there anyway, and to try and trade for their needs. Now, I think it's this next part of their journey that is really interesting. It gives this story quite a unique element. But the reports of his visiting Japan and what happened there were doubted in the years to come, and it all seemed very puzzling to the authorities. Exactly where on the coast they might have arrived had been hard to identify too for a long time. In evidence he later gave to the authorities, he recorded his latitude as 38 degrees north and longitude 126, noting, quote, We made the coast of Japan being in want of wood and water, and the ship being out of repair and having all her sails nearly split to pieces, unquote. But that lat-long position recorded doesn't seem to match any of the known maps and places him nearer the Korean coast. Yet other evidence does suggest it was Japan, so perhaps there was simply some mistake in writing those details down. Swallow recorded coming in to a sheltered bay, noting several vessels operating or anchored in the area, but unusually none approached his ship or came anywhere near. Well, they'd been a long time at sea, and they wouldn't have been smelling too fresh. <laughs> but still, it was highly unusual not to have locals come out and see what the visitors intended. So perhaps he was unaware that Japan was a closed state at this time. Since 1639, the Japanese had refused access to foreigners, and anyone breaching that law would be put to death. Japan had granted an exception only to one small group of Dutch traders, and they were contained on an offshore island in Nagasaki Harbour. Hearst notes that this Japanese isolation policy had been reinforced again in 1825, indicating that any foreign vessel arriving would be driven away by force. The shogun's policy stating, quote, All foreign vessels should be fired upon. Any foreigner who landed should be arrested or killed. Every interaction should be reported in the utmost detail, unquote. As a sailor, you would have thought Swallow would have known about Japan. But either not knowing of such a policy or just being desperate, the Cyprus moved southward down the coast and looked for a more accommodating port anyway, trying their luck and dropping anchor in a wide bay under what looked like a fort. This time, as might be expected, they saw an official-looking vessel approaching, and no doubt they had their story ready. A Japanese official came aboard, requesting by means of making signs an explanation for Swallow's arrival. He wrote a note stating they required fuel and water and would exchange anything on board for the same, and the Japanese official took the note to shore to have it interpreted. But when that letter was given to the commander, it seems he was outraged that any such communication was accepted from the foreigners, and he insisted the official take it right back with an accompanying warning. There would be no assistance offered. Instead, they were advised to depart before sunset or they would be fired upon. <laughs> and just so the message was clear, the official brought with him a cannonball to indicate what would be coming their way after sunset. Swallow appears to have understood the threat, but with no suitable wind to carry them away from shore, they were unable to comply, and they remained anchored where they were. True to their word, at sunset the Japanese sent out boats, one report saying 50 boats, and began firing on the Cyprus, piercing the side Swallow claimed the fort they had anchored under also began firing on them. To their great relief, around 10pm, a breeze arrived, which allowed them to flee out of the bay. The descriptions of where this took place and the coordinates Swallow suggested are confusing, and it was difficult to identify just where he said this took place. There was substantial doubt that any such encounter might have taken place at all and some of the older papers suggest he made up the story to make up an excuse for the ship being lost later. Perhaps his long history of lying and twisting the truth left him reasonably open to those charges. But, more recently, there have been some stunning finds which help clarify and confirm Swallow's story. So we'll just take a little sidestep from the narrative here for a moment, as I want to tell you about an amazing serendipitous find relating to Swallow's story. In 2017, Briton Nick Russell, a Japan-based English teacher and historian, 
came forward with some information he had located in the Japanese archives, which documented an early samurai encounter with Westerners matching the description of the commandeered Cyprus. Russell had lived in Japan for 30 years and speaks and reads Japanese fluently. In 2014, he saw a watercolour sketch and a report of an unnamed ship with a British flag on a website of the Tokushima Prefecture Archive called Illustrated Account of the Arrival of a Foreign Ship. The ship appeared to have been anchored in the waters just below his holiday house in Muki on Shikoku Island. Quote, I could see the spot where the ship had moored, about 700 metres off my back garden, so I was immediately drawn to find out more. Unquote. He then located another samurai report titled, A Foreign Ship Arrives Off Mugi Cove. But the Japanese characters used were very antiquated and difficult for him to understand, so he asked his 82-year-old English-language student, Shinoda, to help him translate the old Japanese dialect into modern Japanese. A Guardian news story described the reports Russell identified, noting, quote, What emerges is a picture of a desperate band of travellers, low on water and firewood, who provoked curiosity and suspicion among local warlords vexed by their appearance, bound to violently repel them by order of Japan's ruling shogun. Hamaguchi wrote of sailors with long-pointed noses who were not hostile, but asked in sign language for water and firewood. One had burst into tears and begun praying when an official rejected an earlier plea. A skipper who looked 25 or 26 placed tobacco in, quote, a suspicious-looking object, sucked and then breathed out smoke, unquote. He had a, quote, scarlet coat and cuffs embroidered with gold thread and the buttons were silver-plated, which was a thing of great beauty, but its clothing it was gaudy, <laughs> unquote. I'll provide a link to the Guardian article, of course, but I want to read a large part of the report from the Japanese documents, because I think it provides a fascinating insight into the culture shock being experienced during this exchange. The local officials seem to be torn between empathy for the sailors' needs and fury at them bringing such trouble into their port. They were bound to repel the barbarians under the 1825 edict, and they must report all they did in response. The samurai's report included some impressions of the barbarians. Quote, they exchanged words among themselves like birds twittering. Unquote. A dog on the ship quote, did not look like food, it looked like a pet. Unquote. <laughs> Another samurai chronicler called Hirota noted the crew offered gifts, including an object he later drew, which looks something like a boomerang. One sailor bared his chest to reveal a tattoo of quote, the upper body of a beautiful woman. Unquote. Hamagotchi quoted Mima, a local commander, saying he had been suspicious of that ship since it arrived. The men on the ship do not look hungry at all. In fact, they seem to be mocking us by diving off the stern and climbing back into the ship again, Mima said, and it's very strange that anyone who goes out for a closer look returns feeling sorry for them. I think they are pirates. We should crush them, unquote. Well, they wouldn't have needed food, because the ship was full of supplies, but water and wood, of course, they would have used up on their journey. Mima stayed up till dawn discussing what to do with his superior, Yamauchi, who decided, quote, We should take out a large lead ball and tell them that if they don't leave immediately, we will fire on them and reduce them to matchwood, unquote. Yamamuchi later told an underling to give some water and firewood if the sailors agreed to leave. The barbarians, in sign language, told the samurai go-betweens they needed five days to mend the sails and paint the ship, one making, quote, a fist with one hand and put it under his cocked head, indicating sleep, unquote. When Yamamuchi refused, the skipper asked for three days and then gave the samurai messengers a letter to pass on. Commander Yamauchi was not happy. What did you accept a letter from them for? Take it back at once, Hamaguchi wrote, unquote. When the ship did not raise its anchor, a cannon fired on the ship like a thunderclap followed by an eerie screeching noise as the old deeply pitted ball flew between the two masts of the barbarian ship. Irritatingly, without sign of haste or panic, the crew leisurely spread one sail, Hamaguchi said. The ship spread another sail but did not move prompting an infuriated Yamauchi to order more cannon fire. 
With little wind, but an onshore breeze, the ship could not sail out to sea, and, instead, ignoring the hail of cannon and musketoon balls, sailed west between two samurai firing positions. Hamaguchi wrote that, At about this time the feudal overseer realised it was a British ship, and became extremely angry, ordering fire on the ship's waterline. Two cannonballs hit and shook the ship badly. The foreigners were standing and yelling. Another cannonball smashed into the ship's hull, and one or two crew lay on the deck appearing killed or injured. The others turned towards Commander Yamauchi's boat. All removed their hats and appeared to be praying, Hamaguchi wrote. Yamauchi asked the underling when the wind would improve, then was good enough to share this knowledge with the barbarians through sign language, and they swiftly turned the brig across the wind. The smaller samurai boats surrounded the foreigners, and a foul stench was coming from the ship. When a samurai musketeer showed his courage by brandishing his big gun in their faces, the barbarians looked worried, cried out, and trembled with fear. Some of them even pointed to their sides and fell down praying. We took this to mean that one of Nishiawa's musketoon balls had reached its mark and taken a life. The crew bailed water, and the ship appeared to be full of our shot. The ship moved on after dusk, a strange pipe and singing could be heard before it sailed away. The sound was like that, made by a child's penny whistle, nothing like a real flute. It was eerie, Hamaguchi said. So these reports made by the officials in Japan do closely match the story told by Swallow, and I think there is now enough evidence to indicate the crew of the Cyprus had quite a close call in attempting to land in Japan at that time. I'll place links to the articles and to Nick Russell's website if you want to know more about those recently identified documents from the Japanese archives and a few of the images created on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au webpage. Once clear of the coast, they had to man the Cyprus pumps as water was filling in the hold from the shot they'd taken. Rough repairs were made, but their situation was dire and they bickered about the next move. Obviously, they would be unwise to approach the Japanese coast again for help, but Swallow thought they might make it to the trading port of Canton, now the port of Guangzhou in China, where the East India Company had a large presence and plenty of ships would be returning to England. Some on board preferred the Ladrone Islands just south of East Macau, but they couldn't reach consensus and continued before putting in at an island, probably one of the Ryukyu Islands, which was Chinese territory at the time, but now Japanese territory, also known as the Nansai Islands, located southwest between Japan and Taiwan. Here they were able to resupply, but for some uncertain reason Denner and Thacker were put ashore here, left with a few supplies to make their own way, to hitch a ride on the next available vessel that travelled in these busy waters. The Cyprus was now barely seaworthy, and the remaining crew, now numbering only eight, could barely continue to sail her. They agreed on a story to explain their arrival in Canton. They would claim to be sailors from a British brig, the Edward, which had recently sunk off the Chinese coast. They practiced the details of their story so all their answers would be the same, and they painted Edward on the longboat. There's a fair bit of confusion and some conflicting stories given about what happened next, but four of the crew, Davis, Jones, Pennell and Herring, left the ship and made their own way to shore, courtesy of a passing junk. Swallow, Beveridge, Watson, Stevenson had to gather their supplies, navigation gear, and make their way to shore together in the longboat to the port of Canton, about 20 kilometres away, after scuttling the Cyprus. Once in Canton, they would hopefully find a vessel that would give them a working passage back to England. It had been six months since they took control of the Cyprus, and now they would see if their gamble would pay off. Claiming to be Captain Waldron of the Edward, now wrecked, and the other three men surviving sailors, the key would be keeping their stories straight. In Canton, one ship's captain was willing to take them back to England, but he insisted they reported the Edward's loss to the British authorities in Canton first. And their story seemed convincing. Swallow even included some of the tales of their real adventures, like the dramas they'd experienced in Japan. Luckily, all four were permitted to depart on the Charles Grant, bound for England. Unfortunately, George Davis, who was one of the four who'd left the Swallow in Chinese waters just before they sank the Cyprus, found his way to the Canton authorities just a couple of days after Swallow and his men had departed. 
On questioning, his story did not entirely match Swallow's, and the authorities became suspicious. Davis was sent back to England to be further investigated, and orders were sent ahead to have the captain, that Swallow, and his sailors intercepted on arrival in England and questioned further also. The numerous ships departing Canton for England all travelled at varying speeds, and though Davis left later, he arrived first in England and was held for questioning while the authorities awaited the arrival of the Charles Grant, with Swallow, then known as Captain Waldron of the Edward, and his sailors. Davis, and with the three that had travelled with Swallow, Beveridge, Stevenson and Watts, when they arrived a short time later, all stuck firmly to their story of being surviving crew of the Edward shipwreck, and almost had the authorities believing their tale. Swallow, however, did not face questioning. He had negotiated to leave the ship at the first port of call at Margate, rather than stay on board until London, and seeing as they were not wanted men at that point, the message from Canton not being relayed until they'd reached the London port, the captain was happy to oblige. So Swallow once again had disappeared before the authorities were able to detain and question him. The four in custody may have gotten away with it had it not been for a sharp-eyed investigator who discovered that their details and appearances matched the reports sent regarding the Cyprus mutiny. Doubt was now cast but they continued to insist that they were hapless sailors, and it's probable there was enough doubt to get them off. But as Swallow had disappeared, so had their mojo. <laughs> Guess who turned up in England? Pobjoy, and he was brought in to give evidence. Pobjoy, of course, could identify them all as his fellow Cyprus convicts, so they would stand trial for piracy and theft. Back in Hobart on September 2nd, an investigation had begun to determine how the Cyprus mutiny had occurred, and Hurst's book describes much of the testimony given. Karu reported on the security arrangements he had put in place, and the evidence was given by various soldiers, the captain, the doctor and passengers. One telling testimony noted, quote, The prisoners saw us on parade every morning, springing our ramrods, and knew that none of our arms were loaded. If we had been loaded, we would have had a good chance, unquote. Other comments were made about the three guards posted and about the use of prisoners as crew assistants and the like. But on the 5th, the inquiry recorded the opinion that, quote, the loss of the Cyprus could be attributed in great degree to the lack of hatch bars over the convict quarters and admonished Carew for failing to keep a proper proportion of his men on duty at all times and also for allowing too many convicts on deck, unquote. So I guess given it was his duty to guard the prisoners, Karu was not going to get off without reprimand after such a spectacular mutiny. He was afterwards court-martialed, charged with, quote, gross neglect of duty as an officer, unquote, and Hurst records he was found guilty and, quote, cashiered, but on appeal was pardoned and allowed to return to duty with his regiment, unquote. Much later, on October 7th, Arthur finally responded to the pleas of the convicts who were still in jail, despite their expectation that their assistance in attempting rescue for the castaways would bring them some reward. Arthur wrote, quote, Looking to the importance of holding out encouragement to good conduct in the prisoners under such circumstances of temptation as this mutiny, and that none of the prisoners, except Hall, in any way willingly aided the mutineers, I will approve of them being disposed of in the following manner, unquote. And here, Hurst records that 12 of the 15 were released from jail, their Macquarie hard labour sentences revoked, and they were then made available for assignment around Hobart for the remainder of their sentences. Hmm, perhaps not in quite enough clemency as might have been desired, but certainly an improvement on Sarah Island. Hall had to continue his Macquarie sentence, but he was told they'd be watching him and that future good behaviour would bring remission of his sentence. Only Pobjoy and Morgan were given full pardons for, quote, good conduct at the time of principal seizure of the colonial brig Cyprus and the subsequent meritorious exertions made at their own risk for the safety of the passengers and crew of the vessel, unquote. And so it was that Pobjoy worked his way back to England on various vessels, though he had more difficulty keeping out of trouble once he arrived. Indeed, he was himself under some suspicion of crime, 
before offering to turn Crown's evidence and provide the authorities there with firm verification as to who had been part of the Cyprus mutiny, identifying Davis, Watts, Beveridge and Stevenson in the first instance. After disembarking in Margate, Swallow had made his way to the now even more crowded London and began making discreet inquiries about his family's whereabouts. Having to keep a low profile, he was unable to find work and had to pawn some of the items he'd kept from the Cyprus to fund his food and lodgings. Using the alias William Todd and disguising himself, he discovered his family was in Lambeth in South London. But Hurst writes that it was in this period of his absence that his wife had married Fluke, which I mentioned being in his convict records in the previous episode. She did go with William, but he suggests that after all this time with the steady grocer's assistant, it was possible that she thought better of returning to her old life with him, and indeed, it seems that her new husband may have given information about his whereabouts to the police, as was suggested in part one. However they came by the knowledge, the authorities soon discovered and arrested him. But Swallow, alias Brown, alias Todd, alias Walker, alias Captain Waldron, etc., 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 would now face inquiry and trial about his role in the mutiny of the Cyprus. It was a big story, and the press and public took great interest. Charged with piracy at a time when that charge had become rare, and stealing the vessel belonging to the king, their trial was held at the Old Bailey. Most likely the five that had been rounded up in England, and potentially those still at large, would all face a death sentence. So that didn't bode well. Hurst records that already that year 130 persons had been sentenced to death from that court, and it held the dubious honour of recording the highest capital convictions of all England and Wales. So it looked like Swallow's luck might be running out. It's interesting that they were charged with piracy, really. As Hurst reminds us, quote, At no stage did they have any intention of converting the vessel into money for their own profit or applying it to any piratical purposes. The Cyprus was used simply as a means to an end. Their real crime was attempting to escape, unquote. But their behaviour could be fitted into the law as piracy, and so they were charged. Once again, Swallow tried it on. He insisted on making a confession of sorts, and asserted that he was forced into taking part because of his sailing and navigating skills. He told the court he was actually below decks when the mutiny was taking place, recovering from his medical procedure, and that they forced him on deck and threatened to kill him if he didn't navigate them safely as demanded. At one point he claimed he was held for eight hours locked in a cabin, and only released when he agreed to navigate to their desired destination. He declared he'd left the ship at one of the islands, but that they had dragged him back and insisted, under threat of death, that he navigate their passage to Japan. And then he recounted the trouble they had getting assistance there. And so he was a reluctant participant, doing their bidding under pain of death only. Despite Popjoy suggesting, quote, he was very busy during the mutiny and seizure of the brig and appeared to be the director of everything, unquote. <laughs> One of the older sources suggests that, apart from Swallow, the other sailors made no mention of the incident in Japan, which seems odd given its gravity, and it was these reflections that led many to suggest that Swallow probably made up the entire encounter to give credence to the tale he told about their ship sinking near Canton. Obviously, Russell's recent discoveries in Japan probably confirm the encounter. But no matter, Swallow had spun his yarn. The stars twinkled over him. The unbelievable fairy dust of fortune swirled around him. My cup overfloweth with amazement. He was acquitted. This man must have been made of Teflon, with the smoothest tongue, the most charismatic and believable of faces. How did he get away with that? Stevenson and Beveridge also escaped death. Stevenson and Beveridge also escaped death, found guilty but instead being sentenced to transportation for life, as the jury had requested mercy, deeming them to have only been incidental to the plot, and they would depart on the Argyle for Van Diemen's Land on February 15, 1831, for the term of their natural lives. On the journey out, though, no doubt recalling how smoothly their first attempt at mutiny on Cyprus had gone, 
they attempted to do it again on the Argyle. But this time they were foiled before they could gain control, and eventually they were deposited at Macquarie Harbour to begin their latest sins. Davis and Watts, however, were found guilty of, quote, piratically and feloniously carrying away by force of arms the vessel named Cyprus, unquote. And as instigators, they were sentenced to hang at execution dock for their premeditation and crime. Hurst reminds us that the Admiralty had jurisdiction over crimes committed at sea, and there was a 400-year history of pirates being hung there, in the Thames, at a low-tide site, downstream of the Tower of London. Traditionally, pirates would have been paraded there through the streets before arriving at the site, and once hung and declared dead, would be left on the gallows, quote, until three tides had washed over them, unquote, before being cut down. Though Popjoy was unable to keep out of trouble and start a new, more socially acceptable life in London, he did at least make some submissions for mercy on their behalf, which was commendable, but to no avail. On December 16, 1830, Davis and Watts became the last persons executed for the crime of piracy in England. Of the others, Denner and Thacker, who'd been offloaded on the Ryukyu Islands, had been sent back to England, and in March of 1831 were questioned about the Cyprus. Both, in the end, were sent back to Van Diemen's Land, where Denner ended up. Hurst recorded Thacker somehow escaped en route. A truly slippery lot, weren't they? The three that had disembarked with Davis near Canton, Jones, Pennell and Herring, appear to have found a passage to America and were never heard of again. Cam, who had left the Cyprus in Tonga, was discovered in Tahiti and was hauled back to Hobart in March of 1832 to stand trial. Found guilty, he was condemned to death there in Hobart. Maguire, another who left the Cyprus at Tonga, was later captured and tried. Being found guilty and sentenced to death, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment on Norfolk Island, yet another of those awful and isolated penal settlements. So to sum up, Davis and Watts met their end in London, Beveridge and Stevenson were sent back to Macquarie Harbour, Denner and Thacker also sent back to Van Diemen's Land, though Thacker seems to have gone missing en route, Cam and Maguire were found guilty, Cam sent to the gallows in Hobart, Maguire having his sentence committed to life imprisonment on Norfolk Island. Jones, Pennell and Herring were thought to have made their way to America from Canton. Poor old Brown, of course, had been lost at sea, and I'm assuming that the last five men, unaccounted for, that were left at Tonga, may well have gotten away to freedom too, at least for some time, until their lifestyles caught up with them perhaps. So maybe Swallow, in not making a successful getaway, was not the most fortunate of them after all. But I do think William Swallow, or William Walker, as he may have been originally, did have the most amazing luck in his ongoing involvement with the convict system, escaping a death penalty on several occasions, and surviving his many dangerous escape attempts though there is no doubt he found incarceration and transportation unbearable and would always have chosen to risk life and limb rather than settle into his sentence, far away from his family. But at some point, even the luckiest of men must face the consequences of their actions. Though Swallow was acquitted of piracy, he was returned to Van Diemen's Land in March of 1831 on the Exmouth to continue serving his sentence of hard labour on Sarah Island at Macquarie Harbour. This time he sailed straight to his incarceration. He did not pass go. He did not get another opportunity to try out his Houdini-like escape skills, either on the way there or once ensconced at the penal settlement. But his notoriety followed him. His fellow convicts and his guards all knew he was the notorious Swallow, who had led a mutiny and sailed the Cyprus halfway around the world, almost making it back to his wife and family. And he was quite the inspiration for others who tried their own seaborne escapes into the future. Hurst describes Macquarie Harbour at the time Swallow would have arrived, and you get an idea of the experience he would have had there. As his Macquarie transport finally made its way through Hell's Gates and into the harbour, those on deck would have seen all around, quote, 
somber, thickly forested mountains, the most striking of which was snow-covered Frenchman's Cap, whose bald head towered 5,000 feet above sea level. Approaching Sarah Island, its buildings and garden allotments protected from unending westerly winds by high wooden palisades, the settlement had the belligerent appearance of a small fortress, unquote. He notes that about 70 prisoners were housed in the Sarah Island Penitentiary or incarcerated on the tiny Grummet Island, and another 100 or so worked on outstations on the mainland around the harbour, working at felling and processing timber, or shipbuilding there. Hurst notes some changes had been made in the intervening years, the lash at last reducing as the preferred punishment, being replaced with solitary confinement in tiny cells. The convicts were expected to work dawn to dusk six days a week, many manhandling logs and timber being floated and hauled in icy water. Hurst suggests that Swallow may have once again been lucky, though, working in the shipyards or crewing around the settlement, given his previous experience, but his exact activities are unknown. Sarah Island was by then a premier shipbuilding site, Hurst noting in those years it was the most productive shipyard in Australia. But it was not to last. Macquarie Harbour was still a difficult place to get prisoners and support staff to, and costly to keep them and by 1833 they began closing it down and moving the convicts out of the harbour to the newer penal settlement at Port Arthur, itself becoming an equally dreaded place of secondary punishment. And while it was connected to the mainland by a narrow isthmus and much closer to the settled areas in Hobart, it was still a formidable and isolated area. One commandant reporting that in a ten-month period, while they recorded 34 escape attempts, only four had succeeded. The same year, Swallow had become ill, tuberculosis taking hold and laying him low. By the end of the year, he was admitted to the settlement's hospital, and in May of the following year, 1834, he died and was buried there on Port Arthur's Isle of the Dead, his grave unmarked. I visited Port Arthur a couple of times, and the Isle of the Dead is a mournful place, not least for the number of boys who were buried there, after an all-too-short life, and Port Arthur itself deserves exploration in its own episode in the future. I would certainly recommend a visit there to anyone with an interest in the convict story. They've done excellent work over the years, and it's a truly interesting and informative place, and quite beautiful these days as well, worthy of a couple of days exploring. Sarah Island, accessed I think now from Strawn, by boat into Macquarie Harbour is more distant in my memory, but it's also one for the visits list when things open up again. I think Swallow's story had some quite fascinating twists and surprising turns, but I think my favourite thing was the recent discovery by Nick Russell of the formal samurai reports and documentation in Japan, which seems to support the story of the convicts entering Japanese waters, as Swallow claimed. The pictures in those documents are fascinating, and I think it would be a good reason this month to go to the podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au histories spelt I-E-S, and have a look at the materials I have posted there. We often have so little evidence to go on, it's wonderful that careful people are still finding and preserving these fantastic gems, and that these stories are becoming more layered and interesting even as they drift further away from us in time. Bravo, Nick Russell. And Nick has a web page called Pirates and Samurai with some information in English and Japanese about his discovery. And of course, I'll put that link in the show notes too. The wonderful ABC podcast, The History Listen, also did a couple of episodes on Nick Russell and his find. So I'll provide links to that too. So now, as I wrap up, I have one more little treat for you relating to the story of the Cypress. Many Australians have made writing ballads about bushrangers and convict rogues an art form, and I'll end today's show with a little musical treat. <laughs> yeah, treat. I'm sticking with treat, so stay tuned. I have no new podcast recommendation this month, though I will put together a page on my website with links to all that I've recommended to date, so I hope to have that ready next month. And I'll just remind you again of the Age of Victoria podcast, which I have recommended previously, 
because in recent episodes, Chris is looking through his Victorian lens at the colonisation of Australia for penal settlement, and I believe his next episode will specifically focus on Port Arthur, so that could be very topical. I'll be keeping an ear out for that one. I have previously done a couple of episodes on the female convict experiences, specifically looking at the Hobart Cascades female factory, so you can find those and have a listen if you're interested. And I will take a look at Port Arthur myself sometime in the long list ahead. But the different focus and perspective of the Victorian social lens that Age of Victoria podcast brings might be of interest too. So I'll provide a link and you can scan for the episodes that relate to Australia if you like. Now I'm so excited to be able to join the sea shanty craze, albeit a little late. Here's one of a number of versions of a ballad written about the Cyprus mutiny. This version is sung by Gary Shearston, and it will see us out today. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll catch you next month with something new. Cheers! Poor Tom Brown from Nottingham, Jack Williams and poor Joe. They were three gallant poacher boys our country does know. And by the laws of our game act, as you may understand, were fourteen years transported boys all to Van Diemen's land. When we landed in this colony, to different masters went for little trifling offences, boys to Obertown jail was sent. Now the second sentence we received and ordered for debris Sent to Macquarie Arbor, that place of tyranny Down Hobartown streets we were guarded on the Cypress Brig conveyed Our topsails they were hoisted boys, our anchor it was weighed the wind it blew and on no west and on we stood straightway till we brought it to an anchorage in a place called Research Bay. Now confined within a dismal hole, those lads contrived a plan to take possession of that brig or else die every man. The planet being approved upon, we all retired to rest. And early next morning, boys, we put them to the test. Up steps bold Jack Muldemon, his comrades three more. We soon disarmed the century and left him in his gore. Liberty, oh liberty, it's liberty we crave. Surrender up your arms, my boys, or the sea shall be your grave. First we landed the soldiers, the captain and his crew. We gave three cheers for liberty and soon bid them adieu. William Swallows, he was chosen, our commander for to be. We gave three cheers for liberty and boldly put to sea. Play on your golden trumpets, boys, and sound your cheerful notes. The cypress brigs on the ocean, boys, by justice does she float.